I felt like I'd always been a strong person. But of course, HIV knocked my confidence. And through that experience, it awakened something in me. Hearing somebody talk about most of what I had been through, how I was feeling, you know, and getting their lives back and being able to continue living and doing what they needed to do. So many women. Okay. There were so many women and quite a few were Ugandans. Was such a powerful testimony for me. You know, to start my life over, I thought, this is it. You know, I want to live again. This is what I need. My name is Mark Thompson, and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist. And this is We Were Always Here a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. As a black gay man living with HIV since 1986 who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy and prevention, it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us. And I just thought, oh, thank God. Obviously not because I was happy she was HIV positive, but just because here was another woman in London who happens to be my friend who is also living with HIV. I don't think you can be a nurse in HIV without realising that politics, economics, society, the role of women, the role of class, all are important to know and understand because what you're doing is, is entering into a world that is completely embroiled in all of those things. Whenever we look back at images from the 1980s and the 80s and the 90s, and we look at the wards, uh, we see people. We see we see two images very often. It's Diana, which is iconic, you know, but also the other images is, is of people in sick in bed with their partners beside them. Really poignant, really really moving. I suppose the one thing is that the ward would be working around the people in the bed so you know it was it was their ward not our ward there weren't routines like getting everybody up at six o'clock in the morning or getting the night staff to get them up so they're ready for a ward round or whatever which is the sort of traditional thing 
that you would have experienced elsewhere. Jane Bruton is a nurse. She started working in HIV prevention in 1986. She now works at Imperial College London as a qualitative researcher looking at the patient experience of healthcare. I'm a great believer in the environment. I think the environment to try and de-clinicalise the environment. So we had duvets on the beds. We had, you know, nice duvet covers. We had nice curtains. We had low lighting. So it felt more like home rather than great big, you know, overhead lights. Um, Especially in the evenings where you were sort of trying to calm everything down, making people feel more comfortable. So it was very much people would stay in bed for however long they wanted and then finding out what they want, you know, what what their day entailed. Some patients obviously wanted to, and I call them patients because you are in that, they they weren't clients, they were patients really, but they were people, primarily they were people. But some of their desires, they wanted to do things that, you know, if these were going to be their last few days, they wanted to do things. So we did have one guy who wanted to do a bungee jump and he did do it. And we've got, we got photographs of him doing it. And of course he had false teeth and he wouldn't take them out. He did the bungee jump. But of course they flew out as he was, you know, they sort of came very prominent in the photograph because I suppose his face was being blown backwards by I don't know how they did the photograph, but I do remember seeing this photograph of this guy. But he did it. And it was a fantastic thing to do. I don't know where, I can't even remember where he had it done. But we really had to make sure that we allowed people to do that, even though perhaps it was a bit risky. And actually you had to take risks. We did have somebody who was a musical theatre person and he was very ill with toxoplasmosis which is an infection in the in the brain um, that can be treated and we were treating him. HIV is a retrovirus and is more efficient at tricking host cells in the body to make multiple copies of itself and cause lifelong infection. Attacked immune cells called T helper cells that normally protect against infections like HIV. If enough T cells get destroyed it leaves the body defenseless against the virus and other infections. But during the treatment, he got an invitation for an audition for a show that he had always wanted to be in. So it was like a lifetime opportunity that he'd never get again. And of course, he wasn't very, you know, he was certainly, we didn't know how long he had. Anyway, he went to the audition. We gave him some paracetamol. So when the doctor came round, his temperature had gone down a bit because it was a bit high. So it went down and he went to the audition because I think the consultant probably wouldn't have let him go. And he did the audition. He got it. And I tell you, he danced in that show for a long time. So he got better from the toxoplasmosis, which is what we we did expect that for, for a lot of patients. He really got looked after by the cast. So when he wasn't quite as well, getting more fatigued they used to get him to lie down in between scenes and then eventually I think they gave him a different role so he could even come on and go off but didn't do very much and I went to his funeral at um, in Covent Garden you know that church in Covent Garden which is the actors church isn't it 
and it was amazing. I can't, <laughs> the only thing is I can't remember what it was, the, the, the actual musical, but they sang, you know, the cast were there and they sang songs from the musical. It was just incredible. You know, people say to you, oh, it must have been terrible. And, it, and I don't want to ever say it wasn't because clearly to see young, and it was mainly young gay men at that time and, and older gay men, to see people so unwell, it was quite surreal. And I did meet Diana. Tell me. And you know, I'm not a royalist at all, but to have seen Diana manage a, a man who was dying so beautifully, you know, whatever I thought about the royal family, uh, and I still think that, I do think that as a person, and she brought that person to that man's bedside, and he would have been over the moon for her to be there. I mean, he was unconscious, but I'm sure he knew she was there. It was, it meant an awful lot. Until this point, HIV had been impossible to kill. Between the first cases in 1981 and 1987, millions were thought to be infected and thousands had died. I'm really lucky. I had no symptoms. I had one or two kind of minor ailments, which on reflection I know was, I put down to my immune system working in overdrive. So I'd have ulcers. Um, I'd have night sweats and night sweats were horrendous you know, because you would wake up and you would have to change sheets on a constant basis. I would have fatigue. I would have all these things which are associated with my HIV, which were constant reminders that this thing lived in your body. But I never was hospitalized. I never had any opportunistic infections, nothing. I was, I was healthy. Psychologically, probably not. Um, I think I was fragile. You know, I was, I was vulnerable. Um, I was never diagnosed with any kind of depression, but I think that it has an accumulative effect over years, you know, when one is trying to bat off the impact of stigma, people's ignorance, your own fear, your inability to walk completely openly and honestly, which a lot of people, that's a privilege, you know, um, when we talk about privilege, privilege is to be able to be your true authentic self regardless of consequence and I was unable to do that and when you're in your formative years 17 to 25 or so that can be hard but yeah no symptoms because I was in the US um I was asked if I wanted to start on medication, literally two weeks after I was diagnosed. Winnie Susuma is a HIV activist and advocate, working to involve and empower those living with HIV. Do you remember what the medication was that they asked you to start? The, the medication was AZT. Okay, so one of the really early first drugs, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. In March 1987, the first antiretroviral drug, Zidovudine, otherwise known as AZT, was approved as treatment for HIV. Well, the way they promoted it was, this is going to make you live just that little bit longer. 
I said, give it to me. I have stuff to do. I want to live just a little bit longer. I was 27 at the time. And yes, of course I wanted to live a little bit longer. AZT was a highly toxic drug about which there was very little information. But at that point, there was nothing else and the pressure was mounting. 71,751 cases of AIDS had been reported to the World Health Organization. They estimated that between 5 to 10 million people were living with HIV worldwide. It was a shred of hope in a devastating and desperate situation. It was developed by a British drug company, Burroughs Wellcome, a subsidiary of Wellcome. Initially, AZT had been known as Compound S, a failed cancer drug that they had sent to the National Cancer Institute to see if it would work against AIDS. It didn't cure the virus, but it did stop it from multiplying. Researchers had to test the drug to ensure that it was not only effective, but that it was safe. These types of tests can take up to 10 years, time that the epidemic didn't have. A controversial trial was then launched with nearly 300 people who had been diagnosed with AIDS to test the drug's effectiveness. The participants were randomly assigned with either a capsule of the drug or a sugar pill, a placebo, for six months. Neither the patients nor the doctors were told which drug the patient had taken. It was explained to me that this was a new drug that could possibly help the virus. And I was told that I would be either given a pill, the real drug, or I would be given something called a placebo because it was in a randomized control trial. I'd never heard of that, I had no idea what those things meant. But once it was explained to me that a placebo meant that I could be getting either the real drug or not the real drug, but I'd still be taking medication. And for me, not being science savvy at 19, um, was like, why would I take a drug when there's nothing in it? You're either gonna give me the drug or you're not. And there's also, well actually, the drug you're gonna give me, I don't know anything about it. Then there was the third thing, which is there's nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. Why would I take something which is gonna potentially bring up lots of side effects, make me feel a lot worse than I am? I'd rather just take my chances. And if I do get ill, then I'll take it. So I elected not to do it. And I'm really glad that I dodged that bullet. The trial was never completed. Following the deaths of 19 patients in the placebo group, it was deemed unethical to continue withholding a potentially life-saving drug from the group any longer. There had only been one death in the AZT group. The disparity in deaths meant that the drug was approved there was still so much uncertainty surrounding the drug as well as controversy. AZT was really hard. It, the, the side effects were unbelievable. Um, I didn't have any appetite um, most of the time. And I wasn't a good eater to begin with. I looked very ashy, you know. My toenails, my fingernails were black, like black. And at that point, I don't really think I knew a lot about the side effects, you know. And I also believed that there wasn't much of a choice at that particular point. If it was a choice between life and death, you know, I could bear the side effects. AZT was distributed globally. In the approval letter, the Burroughs Welcome sent to the FDA, all 50 additional side effects of AZT aside from the most common ones were listed. These included loss of mental acuity, 
muscle spasms, rectal bleeding and tremors. No one knew how long the benefits of the drug would last or if they worked with those further along in their disease. The beneficial effects of the drug were temporary. The toxicity, however, stayed the same. But the urgency of the epidemic meant that traditional approval went out of the window, especially as the tsunami of the disease was about to crash. So we want to just just take you back, Winnie, to so this is about this is about you again and you making that decision in to go back to Uganda and to die. We know what brings you to that decision, but where does that that's a really brave, really powerful thing to say to oneself. Where does that sit with you? How do you hold that? How do you navigate? that decision? I think I was a bit naive in terms of how that was going to happen. Um, when I look back, I was a bit naive. But I think what brought me to that point was physical and mental exhaustion. Not seeing a way forward. The loss, I think, of half of my family also was really, I hadn't dealt with those issues properly. My mom died. I lost a brother to HIV, um, HIV-related TB. I lost my dad to a different form of cancer, and that was half of my family gone. But also the, you know, what seemed like the ongoing stigma around HIV and, you know, you know, the stigma and discrimination around HIV. So it was a combination of all of that. And the only people I talked to were healthcare workers. I told my doctor in the US and I said, I'm leaving, I'm going to Uganda. And she says, you're not going to survive. And I'm like, this is a decision I've made. I don't feel like living anywhere. So she gave me uh, six months worth of medication because that's all she could give me. And I went back to Uganda to basically die. The first day that I got to Uganda, um, I actually disclosed my HIV status to my sister and she was very supportive you know she told me in her exact words that I know I have a lot of friends who are HIV positive and I know where to take you if you get sick and that was like okay it was a relief actually to share that with my sister um, but also to have that response of support from Two years in Uganda, and I nearly died. I nearly got my wish because uh, when my medication got finished, I got TB, I got pneumonia, I got diarrhea, and all of them literally could have finished me. And at one point, I felt like I almost, you know, got there because um, when I got diarrhea, um, 
it drained me so mm. much. It was so, you know, dehydrating. And I was real thin. I was really very, very thin. And none of the medication that I took could do anything. Um, and so I had to go to a herbalist, you know. And, um, and I was taken to this herbalist by a relative. And you know, sometimes there's a very thin line between a herbalist, traditionalist, and voodoo. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, I'm dead. Now I'm dead. So this herbalist told me that uh, you take the medication. If it works, you come back to me and you pay me. If it doesn't work, don't pay me. And that's what encouraged me. Because usually people just want their money right away. Give me this, you know. I took, but there was so much I was told about taking this herbal stuff. And anyway, I took the herbal stuff, stopped the diarrhea in days, literally in days. But then I just, you know, and of course I did pay the money to the herbalist. But I also found out that uh, this is not a rare thing. But leaving Uganda to, to come for, on vacation to the UK and what happened in that space of two weeks is really what, um, you know, thank for turning my life around. Mm. The representation of the HIV AIDS epidemic globally, you know, has been shown through the lens of gay men predominantly. Nearly all of the stories, all of the narratives we've seen have been through that lens and that perspective. Occasionally, you know, women with HIV kind of weaved in just a little bit, but overall it's been, it's been gay men. And that has a lot to do, you know, who holds the power of storytelling, right? And then also, many people who work in those fields were impacted by HIV and by the AIDS epidemic. So I'm never going to take that away. You know, if we look across Hollywood and the media, huge swathes of gay men. And so it's right that their stories are told and it's right that their friends remember them. Absolutely right. But what happens is that when we look at longtime companion, Angels in America, Normal Heart, all of these things are written by white gay men telling their narrative. Cool. And bring us right up to date with It's a Sin. It's a white gay man writing about his world and his experience. So the media, TV, are not talking about any other communities. When I'm looking to the African continent and I'm seeing images there, I'm seeing women. But it's over there, right? It's in Africa. So it's not over there. It's not our issue. It's like famine. Since the start of the epidemic, women in many regions have been disproportionately affected by HIV. Today, women make up more than half of all people living with HIV and AIDS-related illnesses. Women who contracted the virus in the mid-80s often found themselves isolated and with no sense of community. We saw very few women, and mostly it was 
black African women at that time. You know, that, that, was, that, that was the demographic we begin to, we did see, um, we did have some black African men as well, but mainly it was, it was women. And uh, I, I suppose what you really understood was the, the, the huge isolation and burden for, for women. I do remember one young woman, I don't remember her ever having any visitors. I really don't. And she, I remember, I remember Irene really, her name was Irene. And it was so difficult to look after her because she was so frightened and isolated. And we were her friends, you know, in a way, I mean, you are a friend to a patient. You, it, it, That's the, the nature of the relationship but it's a it's not a, a friend friend but it is that friendship that you do build and we you know we did support her she did go home I'm sure more than once but obviously was readmitted and in poor circumstances she was she did she lived alone she you know and it was in a she was in a bad way and I think that was the experience really that all the wards were, were predominantly men the outpatient clinics would have been predominantly men, you know, and so they needed something to just know that there were other women around that were in the same situation as them. One of the things that I feel saved me, I came over to the UK. Um, Did you originally born in Sheffield, right? You're a North, you're, you're a Sheffield. Right? I was originally uh, yes, I'm a you know I'm born in Sheffield, but I really um, had no sort of association to Sheffield, you know, since my parents left when I was three. But I had my British passport, so I said, this is the time to use it. I came to the UK basically for two weeks uh, for a holiday. Um, I was still keen on not trying to, to, you know, to start again. I just wanted to die. I just wanted to die. In Uganda, I was very isolated. But what happened then is... Um, I was staying with my brother during those two weeks and he was staying in Leytonstone and in the the building, it was a high-rise building, and there was another Ugandan lady who was living in the building and she was HIV positive and she used to go to this uh, support group. So um, she said, you know, um, they, you know, we do this and this group come, even if it's just the ones, you know, come and see what we do there. I'd never accessed anything like that. And I've been HIV positive for eight years, literally. So we went to this uh, support group, which was Body and Soul, that supports people living with HIV, but it also now has... Uh, uh, supports young people with mental health issues and all of that um, still exists, which is really quite amazing. So we went to Body and Soul and it was quite overwhelming, actually. It was quite overwhelming. 
um, because there were so many people. There were so many people. There were so many women. Okay. There were so many women and quite a few were Ugandans. There must have been maybe 50. 50? 50 women in that, in that um, place. You know, we'd be fed and then we would, you know, talk about our life stories and people would talk. So I sat there in that room. I remember I sat behind because I wanted to listen. And I was also taking in all of this, but I wasn't also sure what was going on. I wasn't sure, even if uh, I was told that come to this place, it's support. I wasn't sure that it was specifically HIV support because I'd never been to a support group. So we sit there and people start talking about their lives. Women start talking about their lives being uh, affected by HIV in all sorts of ways about getting their lives back. And they talked and talked. I didn't say anything. But when I left there, it awakened something in me. That is what changed literally in my life uh, to help me to make me live again. In the next episode of We Were Always Here. Like what was happening amongst gay men was women were dying as well, you know, left, right and centre. We had that night like 65 women, all ages, and she walked into the room and literally she froze. She said she had never seen so many HIV positive women in her entire life. What I said to her in her face shouting in her face was like you are fucking joking four times apparently you're fucking joking and then within 10 minutes i was back up in my cell we were always here was presented by me mark thompson it was produced by hannah walker brown the production assistant was rory boyle this is a Broccoli Production.